Please be seated. Before we pray, I noticed that our text or our bulletin says that um, we'll be focusing on chapter 47. It's actually 48. And um, who knows why I said 47, but 48 if you're following along. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would be in my speaking and all of our hearing and that you would transform everything, um, my words, um, our thoughts, even your holy scriptures, into your spiritual presence that you and you alone would be our teacher, both individually and collectively, and that we would connect deeply with you as your beloved children. Amen. Well, we just sang it to all things now living, unite in thanksgiving. Did we sing that too fast to get what we're singing? All things now living, unite in thanksgiving. How are we doing on that? Great. Okay. We sang, till shadows have vanished and all fearfulness Banished. How are we doing on that one? So, Christ the King Sunday is about this thing that theologians call already but not yet. The already is we sort of can claim that hope and promise and we can begin to imagine what that looks like. And yet, in our everyday life, we know, oh my gosh, we're nowhere close to this whatsoever. And we're almost afraid to open up the paper or turn on the TV because we get more negative confirmation than we actually get signs that we're moving in the right direction. I don't know about you, but in the last few years, I have been deeply humbled um, because things have happened, especially in our country, that really, for me, have been sort of shocking. And I keep on thinking, I never saw this coming. And then, the more that I sort of investigate the antecedents, the cultural antecedents, the historical antecedents, the more that I feel personally the idiot. That the things that have emerged recently that shocked me actually have always been here. I don't know if that's hopeful or grounding or what, it just is. So on Christ the King Sunday, the sense of Christ loving, ruling power that unites all things in thanksgiving um, where shadows are vanished and fearfulness is, is gone seems a long way away. This should not be surprising. Again, I'm almost embarrassed uh, to remind us of this passage, you probably are way ahead of me, but Jesus 
did say at that crucial moment before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he said, if my kingdom were from this world, then my followers would be fighting. And it seems that that's what kingdoms of this world do best. It's where the money is to be made. It's where the news coverage gets the ratings. It's what mobilizes people quickly. My kingdom is not from this world. If it was from this world, my people would be fighting. I need, I don't know about you, a whole new way of thinking. I I need a whole new way of thinking about all of this outside of me and inside of me. Wallace Stevens said, in the plain sense of things, after the leaves have fallen, we return to a plain sense of things. It is as if we had come to the end of imagination. I resonate with that. I feel, and I have felt for some time, and this feeling has been somatized in me in things like added stress and weight gain and all sorts of things, sort of a winter of the soul. I don't know about you. And it has seemed to me at times of coming to an end of things, of lacking even imagination. That imagination to see in the midst of all of this gospel of of hope. Robert Alter, the great poet and literary critic, writes of of the most characteristic moments in the biblical narrative. He says the world is seen as offering all sorts of access to human understanding, but there is no absolute fit between the nature of reality and the human mind. There is no absolute fit between what God, according to Augustine, has placed in the yearning of our souls and the day-to-day life that we live, at least consistently. The biblical tale, Alter says, is fashioned in ways that repeatedly remind us of that ontological discrepancy. I love that phrase, ontological discrepancy. What does it mean? That what seems most real to us is not the most real. Now, there's all sorts of dangers thinking this way. In fact, in the early Christian days, if you take that thinking to extreme, you wind up with a Christian heresy that could sort of be called seemism. Things only seem a certain way. They're not really a certain way. I think the ontological discrepancy that Alter is talking about are adolescent children illustrated for us being more vulnerable than we. 
because I know that you are answering with them. The ontological discrepancy of living in the place where you feel in your bones each and every moment, yes, I am God's beloved child, and in me he is well pleased. Instead, we live in a winter of our souls. There are strategies in churches to sort of um, sate that wintering. Um, happy, 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 church service, music, glad-handing, aren't we awesome with the stuff we do? You, you know what I'm talking about. But Richard Rohr would suggest that actually identifying this within us is absolutely crucial. It's part of God's love for us that we feel this way, that we are aware of these things. Richard Rohr says there's an inherent and desirous dissatisfaction that God has placed within us an inherent and desirous dissatisfaction that both sends us and draws us forward. Now, there are many ways in which we live in such an awesome time compared to those who have gone before us. Just to mention two things, flush plumbing and anesthesia, I would just say those two alone would keep me from going back in a time machine. But because we have so much stuff, we numb ourselves to this desirous dissatisfaction that God has placed in us. And when we begin to feel it, we look at our screen, we turn on the TV, we go buy something, we drink something, we eat something, and we place our souls on some type of material Prozac. The soul, our souls, live eternally in deep time. We must learn how to go there and how to abide there as much as possible. Basically, says Rohr, this is the meaning of prayer. What we did with the Psalms. Prayer could be described as just listening for that deepest level of our desiring every day. So thankful to John Owen and Olivia and Helen for last week. If you were here, it was um, just, I thought, absolutely wonderful. Um, I was able to catch it online. When John read the scriptures, that desirous dissatisfaction, that deep yearning came out, right, if you were here. We need more of that. Not just we, everyone needs more of that. So chapter 48, verse 1, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, he summoned his strength, sat up in bed. This is the first biblical deathbed scene. Verse 8, when Israel, or Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, whose are these? It's interesting to me that commentators spend a lot of time trying to figure out why Jacob Israel would say that, and it makes me think to the commentators, you've never been with someone when they're dying. Confusion is one of those marks of one of the vulnerabilities. He said, whose are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I might bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, and he could not see well. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I did not expect to see your face. And here God has let me see your children. Also, it's a long way for a character who swindled his brother's blessing to not hold on to it to the very end, but to give it away to a generation he has just met, never expected to see. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg says, according to the Midrash, Jacob looks at his grandchildren and sees evil and alienation engendered by them. These are not perfect kids. Kings of misrule and worshipers of strange gods. His gaze instantly turns blank. Whose are these? And that expresses a rupture, a dryness, an inert savor. In this condition, at first, he can clearly not bless them. A certain kind of vision is essential to blessing as it is to poetry. What he sees throws him into silence into a bleak midwinter. See, I read the passage too fast, didn't I? I like the blessing. I like the hallmark reading. The Jewish rabbis knew that blessing, especially the blessing of an older generation to a younger generation, is always fraught. They don't know what they're doing. You got to be kidding me. They haven't earned it. They're going to mess it up. They're going to change what I hold dear. They're going to waste it away. It's the voice of Judas before the woman who anoints Jesus with costly perfume, saying, 
we should have sold the perfume and given it to the poor. And Jesus says, essentially, why not waste? Why not waste? Why not waste? That's probably the most unpresbyterian sentiment in the entire scriptures. When Jacob gives his blessing, you could see it almost as a waste. Frosty wind made moan, earth standing hard as iron, water like stone, snow had fallen, snow on snow on snow. He's looking at these children. And in the depth of his soul, he sees them as the frozen statues in Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. But Jacob brings, he brings desire. To have desire, you have to risk waste. Again, Wallace Stevens in his notes towards a supreme fiction says, and not to have is the beginning of desire. Jacob does not have control over his sons. He doesn't have confidence over his sons. He doesn't have trust over his sons. To not have is the beginning of desire. To have what is not is this ancient cycle. It is desire at the end of winter when it observes the effortless weather turning blue, being virile. It hears the calendar hymn. To not have is the beginning of desire. This is what Aviva Gottlieb Thornburg sees in Jacob. The beginning of desire. The title of her book. We might think that the beginning of desire in the biblical narrative is Eve's moment in front of the tree of discernment. That, of course, is a desirous dissatisfaction. And her yearning leads to growth and pain, complicated human relations, and transcendent religious connection that's always problematic with God. There are very few hallmark moments outside of Eden to which she is cast. Eve's actions, immature and unknowing, emerge from a self-possession. That is what the serpent in the story is able to exploit. Eat, and you will become like God. Eat, and you will shortcut the great journey of our adolescent children who, in faith, are asked to believe each and every day that they are beloved by God. So much easier to give them a pill to become like God, to cut out the middle man of faith. Self-possession. So much of Jacob's life has been lived in that very country of self-possession, 
the self-possession of envy, of victimhood, shame, fear, confusion, and at least perceived distance from God. So Aviva suggests that the movement from self-possession to a more complex, inspired, and receptive vision of things, what allows Jacob to be generative, that brings Jacob from a discreet mind of winter view of his children to one that actually allows him to see despite everything that he does not have confidence in or trust, to see them as flowing, feeding one another, growing, passionate, and capable of transformation in order to get there. Jacob has to move from self-possession. Jacob is able to move from self-possession by seeing clearly what he does not have. Jacob is the only patriarch that speaks his blessing knowledgeably during his own end. He becomes what Eric Erickson calls a generative person, one who is eager and able to generate life from his or her own abundance for the benefit of following generations. And what is he generating exactly? Again, in Genesis 49, there's a reality check because after the blessings of chapter 48, Jacob actually makes predictions in chapter 49. And those predictions talk about generations of instability, slavery, failure, violence, injustice, greed, conquest. The focus is not on the word already spoken, but on a promise still to be kept, says Walter Brueggemann. And it's important that this promise is given in Egypt. It is the way of Egypt and every kingdom of this world to abolish the future, to abolish hope for an uncriticized present. To just be real. To say, well, that's the way it's always been. Or that's the way it must be. Or people will be people. Jacob and his faithful children will not abandon the future. They insist on God's future, which places every Egyptian present into question. Perhaps the future generations will value the Egyptian present. But the old man can still hope. His head has not been turned. He continues to grieve over his favorite wife, Rachel, and it's that very grief that becomes the source of his hope. It's when we face what we do not have 
that we have the beginning of desire and the seeds of hope. So his final task before death is to see that hope continues to be the main business of his family. For Jacob, the capacity to hope will lead him into more conflict. It's worth pausing, I suppose, as we begin to enter into a season Some of us will begin to decorate with Christmas stuff today. A season of material abundance. But that material abundance won't answer the question I asked our adolescent children. And it won't provide the type of generative blessings that we see in Jacob or the solid ground of hope that is so strong it can face a future that seems absolutely uncontrollable and lost, but says, yet God. Yet God. In the bleak midwinter, poor as he was, What could he give them but all of our hearts?